Father God, you tell us very clearly that you control the destinies of men, that you place people in positions of authority and remove people from positions of authority. And we trust you. Father, we pray for our president-elect, Mr. Trump, and his cabinet that he is seeking to put together. We pray for old and new representatives, senators, governors, legislators at all levels, a future Supreme Court justice and the present eight. We ask, Father, that you would place women and men in positions of authority that look to you, look to your word, that if they do not know your son as Savior, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray, Father, that moral and ethical, God-centered decisions would be made for our nation and that we would truly be a nation under God. We pray this not only for our republic, but for nations across the globe, that you would put women and men into positions of authority that would seek to honor your word. And Father, we pray that we would honor your word, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And as we look at three parables today, use these parables in our lives for our betterment and for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In 1973, Gary Kildale created the first popular inner workings of a home computer. It was so well done, this CPM, that he caught the attention of IBM. He caught their attention and they desired that Gary would create the inner workings of their next generation of computers. Although I read that Gary was brilliant, he was not particularly a mature individual, rather an immature individual. And although he had the attention of a growing giant, and although they wanted him to create the inner workings of the next generation of computers, the day came when he was supposed to meet with them and he looked outside and it was a beautiful day. A beautiful day to go flying in his little plane. And so he sent his wife Dorothy instead of showing up himself. Dorothy was not quite as adept as Gary at these type of things. And you can imagine the utter displeasure of IBM having set up an appointment, having arrived for an appointment and discovering that the individual they wanted to talk to went flying out in the friendly skies instead of meeting with them. And so they instead set up a meeting with Paul Allen and his sidekick, Bill Gates, and the rest is history because Microsoft then created the inner workings for IBM and in a short amount of time, they became multimillionaires, eventually billionaires, and Gary Kildell just kind of faded from the limelight. A biographer of Gary said this. He died in 1994. 
He died an alcoholic, a man of despair at age 54. He died because although brilliant, he could not see and envision the future, and he could not see that what he had created would eventually grow and snowball into something large. God does not want his church to have the same experience. He wants us to understand that although the church at one point was as small as a mustard seed, the smallest seed known in the Middle East, a grain seed, it would eventually become a mustard plant with its 15-foot vertical height and width. He also is going to want us to know that the kingdom of God is like three measures of flour, and yet a little yeast is put in, and the yeast impacts all three measures. A measure is 50 pounds, and he's talking about a very small amount of yeast, yet the small amount of yeast, and he's talking about you, and he's talking about me, empowered by the Spirit, the small amount of yeast impacts 50 pounds of flour, 50 pounds worth of effect in our society. And finally, he's going to want us to know that the kingdom of God is like the pearl of great price. We're going to go in reverse this morning. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 13, 45 and 46, the first of three parables on the kingdom of God used also as the kingdom of heaven interchangeably. Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value or great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. As you and I begin to look at this parable, I think it helps us to understand the value that the first century placed in pearls. I think first century pearls are probably equivalent to 20th century diamonds or 21st century diamonds. You know the cliches, a diamond is a girl's best friend, or diamonds are forever. Not only a cliche of an ad, but also a 1971 James Bond movie, shaken, you know, not stirred. Diamonds today are very valuable. But in the first century, although organic, it was still considered a gem. Pearls were much more valuable in the eyes of the people than were diamonds. Part of that is because pearls were exceedingly difficult to get. Today we have pearl farms in relatively shallow waters making getting these oysters that contain a pearl relatively safe and efficient. That did not exist in the first century. As I understand it, the best pearls were cultivated in 40 feet of water. We have to understand that this was before modern equipment. And what we have are pearl divers, women and men, who essentially have two pieces of equipment. They have a rope wrapped around their waist, and they have a very heavy rock that they hug 
and they're tossed overboard and the rock takes them down 40 feet. Then they have to, in the darkness, reach around in the hopes of finding an oyster. They have to handle the pressure of the water so that it doesn't explode their eardrums. They have to be up in time that they don't use gray matter because of a lack of oxygen. Then we have moray eels and we have sharks. It was a very dangerous proposition. We have a fair amount of information on first century pearl hunters. And we understand that on average, a pearl hunter found one pearl of great value and every 1,000 oysters she or he gets out of the bottom. In the very unlikely event that for every dive, you actually got an oyster that was much better than normal odds, that means it would be a 1,000 dives, all very dangerous and detrimental to one's health, before you would likely get a pearl of great price. That's why these pearls were exceptionally valuable. They were exceptionally rare. In fact, we have evidence, the Talmud tells us, that there was nothing more valuable than a fine pearl. And we have evidence from Romans and Egyptians that some Romans and Egyptians actually worshipped a god that was over the pearls. We know from the Roman courts that the wealthiest women would braid pearls into their hairs as a position of opulence, as some kind of visual sense for everyone to know how important they are. We actually have evidence of a few Roman emperors in order to impress the courts who took pearls of great price and dissolved them in vinegar and then drank it. That's silliness, isn't it? It's kind of like a millionaire taking a cigar and lighting it with a $100 bill. It makes no sense. During the breaks at work, when I watch my fellow workers, the females, they don't take a $100 bill to light their cigars. They never do that silliness. Not at all. So what's the point of the parable? The kingdom of God is compared to the pearl of great price. It's that rare. It's that valuable. You and I live in erroneous pearls all over the place, or erroneous pools all over the place. People are looking for the pearl of great price in this theology, in this ideology, and this philosophy. But there's only one. But it's elusive to find because of our own hearts. I think of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, 18c, all the way to 20. He talks about men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has made the means of salvation clear, but because of our unrighteousness, because we suppress the truth, we go after false ideologies and philosophies and religions. 
we think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We wish that the text said that wide is the gate that leads to heaven and narrow is the gate that leads to destruction. But that's not what the text says because we live in a day and age where we are idol factories in our hearts. We create gods in our own image and we go after false philosophies and ideologies and religions. But Jesus was very clear. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first parable we look at reminds us that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like the pearl of great price. The second parable is about the mustard seed. I'm going to go back again to Luke 13. Now I want to read verses 18 and 19. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made its nests in it. Here Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God will grow imperceptibly. It will grow slowly. Sometimes it won't look like much growth, and yet in fact it is growing. Think about how it all started. We could go back to Genesis 2 and 3. God created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. We move to Genesis 12 and 15. And now we have a larger population. And God comes to a man named Abram. He says, you will now be Abraham, the father of many nations. And from you someday will be offspring that will number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And the kingdom of God continues to grow. And then we get to the New Testament, and we have a virgin in Nazareth named Mary, betrothed to a man named Joseph. They're probably 12 or 13 years old. She is given a child by a miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit. They travel down south, and the child is born in Bethlehem. Eventually, they make their way back up north, so he will be called a Nazarene. And for the next 30 years, again, growth is imperceptible. He's a tecton. He's a stone carpenter. There doesn't seem to be any huge jump in the kingdom. Eventually, he will bring forth 12 disciples. One will betray him. He'll talk to multitudes, sometimes 5,000 men, their wives, and their children. But then we'll soon learn in John 6 that when he stops performing miracles and he stops feeding them, many, many leave. Jesus will eventually ascend after three and a half years. And we read in Acts chapter 1 that the church is not very big. It's 120 strong. Then we read in Acts chapter 2 that Peter speaks and the Holy Spirit moves and 3,000 come to Christ. We read in Acts chapter 8 
that Philip comes across, an Ethiopian, and now we have somebody in Africa that is impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's AD 34. And then in the 50s and the 60s, very early on in the 60s, mostly the 50s, we have Paul going up and down the Mediterranean, and the gospel is going forth in Europe and Asia and the Middle East. By AD 60, the gospel has reached Ukraine. By AD 100, the gospel has gone to Monaco, Sri Lanka, Algeria. By the end of the third century, we have gospel preaching churches, albeit illegal, all over the Roman Empire. By 312, we have the Roman Emperor Constantine, who issues the Edict of Milan and actually legalizes Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire. By 378, we have St. Jerome, the great Bible scholar who tells us that the gospel has gone all over the world from India and Britain. Everyone has heard of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By 398... Christianity is not only legalized in Rome, that's 312, but in 398, it's the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. By the 4th and 5th century, the leader of the church is no longer European. He's a man of African descent from Hippo. His name is Augustine. And the church continues to grow. We have the gospel going to China in the second century. By the seventh century, the Tang Dynasty has a problem because Christianity is all over China. By the 11th century, the gospel has gone as far north as Greenland. And so we have this mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, one millimeter. You need 25 of them in order to make one inch. And yet the mustard seed has gone forth with the gospel in power. And the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small. It starts imperceptible. But it grows and it grows and it grows. That's the second parable of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The third is also in Luke 13. Let me read verses 20 and 21. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now this is a bit confusing if you're steeped in the Old Testament and the New. Because by and large, leaven is bad. When you read leaven, it's generally sin all the way back from Exodus 12 or we have it in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, get rid of the old leaven, which is a warning to Christ's followers not to stay away from unbelievers, but to stay away from professing believers who are living unethical, immoral lives. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so by and large, when we read in Scripture about leaven, it's all about sin. But that's not how Jesus uses it here. Instead, Jesus says that you, I, we are to be like leaven, a little leaven mixed in with three measures, 50 pounds of flour, and yet the leaven goes throughout all the flour so that when the bed is breaked, all of it rises, all of it's impacted 
all of it is changed. That's how you and I are to be in our culture. We're to be the leaven that impacts, that changes, that makes a difference in our culture. So let's consider all three of these parables. How do we apply them? First, let's start with the last parable. We are told that we are to be the leaven in three measures in 50 pounds of flour. And I need to step back and ask myself if that's true about me. Am I making a kingdom impact where God has me living? Am I making a difference for his kingdom? You probably need to ask yourself the same question. Are you making an impact for the kingdom of God where God has planted you? He may have planted you on a college campus. He may have planted you in a high school or a middle school. He may have planted you in an athletic pursuit or a musical pursuit at work in your neighborhood. Are we making an impact are we going in the Connect, Grow, Go? Are we going and telling others about Christ? Are we taking a stand for Christ? Are we bearing the talent that God has given us? Or are we using the talent that God has given us to multiply talents for the kingdom? When's the last time you and I shared the gospel of Christ verbally with someone? When's the last time you and I out in the marketplace where it's a little risky, took a righteous stand for Jesus Christ? When's the last time you and I asked someone to come to a Christ-centered event where they might hear the gospel? I know for many of you, you've probably done those things this last week, and that is very good. May your model increase. You see, the parable tells me that I am to be like the little leaven among the flower and to make an impact in our community. An impact by what we say, how we live, the lives we model. Let's suppose you're single and you want to date. Not all singles do, but some do. So you want to date. You remember several things. You remember 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1, that we're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So although you're salt and light to a world that is lost, you're only going to have that closest of a relationship with a believer. You remember 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee immorality, sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, he commits outside the body, but he who commits sexually commits a sin against his own body. And so you set an example of what's godly by how you live. But suppose some are married. And to set an example and to honor your spouse, you remember if your husband, Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You remember Ephesians 5, 33, if you're a wife, wife, respect your husband. Maybe you're in a mixed marriage and you remember 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 that you are to win your unbelieving spouse, perhaps even without a word, but by the conduct that you live. Maybe you're a young person and you remember that to, to have this kind of impact in the world, you have to honor your parents and you remember Ephesians 6 verses 1 and following. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may receive well the land that God has promised. And so we impact our world by the lives we live, but we also impact our world by going and sharing verbally the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, but beyond that, it's like leaven. It's like leaven in the three measures. It impacts all them around. Second, we think of the kingdom of God like the pearl of great price. Notice again verse 46. On finding one pearl of great price or value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. <coughs> In other words, when he finds the pearl, everything else pales in comparison. The pearl is Christ and the gospel of Christ. Everything pales compared to Christ in our lives. Everything pales compared to the gospel of Christ in our lives. And again, I think the text is asking me to step back and evaluate. Have I allowed other things to be more important in my life than the pearl of great price, which is Christ and his kingdom? Are athletic pursuits more important? Or artistic pursuits or musical pursuits, or financial pursuits, or family pursuits, or recreational pursuits. We can fill in the blank of the things that you and I can easily create into idols, but what we have here is the pearl of great price. When he found the pearl of great price, everything else took a secondary station in his life. And this is a call for evaluation. Have I allowed other things, other people, other possessions, other priorities to become more important in my life than Christ? When he found the pearl of great price, Jesus Christ and his gospel, everything else paled in comparison. Finally, we're encouraged by the advancement of God's kingdom. It started like a mustard seed. 25 of those for one inch. Imperceptible, tiny little mustard seed. And then it's grown and grown and grown and continues to grow. Sometimes when you and I share the gospel with someone, we finish, we walk away and we said, man, it didn't go very well. Um, they didn't pay any attention. They mocked what I said. They disagreed. I was committed not to get into an argument, and it got into an argument. That was just that was just a waste of time. But we don't know that. It's our job to go. It's God's job to grow. It's our job to plant the seed. Maybe the Lord will bring somebody else along to fertilize it and to water it. And then the Holy Spirit will give the increase. We don't know exactly what God does. We just know that the kingdom of God advances like a mustard seed. Maybe you have taught in a connection care group or one-way club or Gen 180 or uh, young singles or journeys. 
maybe it's women of real devotion or a men's Bible study or a Sunday school class. I don't know what it is you've taught. And it didn't feel like anything really made an impact, that it had any impact on someone's life. And yet we don't know. The kingdom of God is, is like a mustard seed. And maybe we plant it and somebody else fertilizes and waters and the Holy Spirit gives the increase and we never know what God will do. We're not talking about triumphalism, that silly post-tribulation view that the world is going to get better and better until Jesus finally comes. We're not placing our faith in politics. We would be unwise to do so. We're placing our faith in the pearl of great price. And we understand that the pearl of great price has to have priority in our lives. And that that pearl of great price is supposed to impact us as we impact the world. And we're to be a little yeast spread into three measures of flour. Wherever God plants us, we are to have an impact. And we know that though it's a mustard seed, God can take that mustard seed and grow it into a mustard tree. Because that's how the kingdom of God, that's how the kingdom of heaven works. Let's pray. Father God, three very simple parables on how your kingdom moves, how your kingdom impacts and changes and transforms. We never cease to be amazed that you would include us in such kingdom work. And we ask that you would include us and that you would grow us and use us to see others come to Christ. May we value the pearl of great price. May we value your son and the gospel of faith in Christ alone. And may you use us to share that pearl of great price with others. And we'll trust you to grow and for the increase. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.